Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. So join me in 1 John. We're in chapter, we're in chapter 1 still, verse 5. We started a series called One Another just last week, kind of launching into our year, looking at what John has to say to us about how our vertical relationship, our relationship with God relates in our horizontal relationships with one another. A few years ago, I was teaching at a, a university in my home state, and I had a student that missed class. And when he returned to offer an apology, he explained why he was not there uh, the last class period. And I not only understood, I empathized with him. He ran out of gas. And I, I have done that between my high school and college years on no less than three occasions. Now, kids, you don't want to do that today. These souped-up, you know, computer-run cars that you can barely get them cranked. But, but my 1984 F-150 truck that I drove in college... Uh, all you had to do was pop the hood, take the air cleaner off, pour a little bit of gas in the carburetor, crank it right up, right? It would just run. So it didn't hurt it to run it out of gas, uh, but on no less than three occasions, I have really embarrassing experiences and memories of carrying a gas can for a mile or more because I was trying to test that E-line, right, on the gas gauge. And that's what this guy did, except he didn't realize what he'd actually done. He, he normally... You, you can train with a car that has gauges, or you can train to drive with a car that has idiot lights. Y'all know the difference? Okay, so, so this young man had trained with a car that had idiot lights, but on this particular morning, he borrowed his dad's truck about the same make and model as the one that I owned at the time and was trying to get to school in it. And when he left, he looked at the gauges, and he saw that the gauge was at the halfway point, which made him kind of puzzled when he ended up on the side of the road, even though the gauge was at the halfway point. And that was when he realized he was looking at the oil pressure gauge. And the oil pressure gauge, while important, if, if it's not accompanied by at least a gas gauge that has something there, it doesn't matter what the oil pressure is, right? You're, you're not going to get anywhere. So you, you can get in a lot of trouble. That's kind of my point as I open up this morning, by looking at the wrong gauges or by neglecting the right gauges. This morning, we're going to get a lesson in, in what it looks like to look at the right gauges. We started that series last week, one another, verse by verse. John has been teaching us in these first four verses that corrupted faith and corrupted community are always to be found together. When one goes down, the other one eventually is going to get corrupted in some way. Today, we're going to see that connection more clearly Still, and here's the reason, because of a lot of folks, even who claim to follow Jesus, are running on spiritual empty, and they don't know why. And one of the things John's going to expose us to today is the possibility that you're looking, not necessarily at the wrong gauges, but you're neglecting the right ones. Okay? In the evangelical church in the West, we're really good, typically, at a couple of things. We're good at telling you, and we're right to do this, by the way, that you should watch your doctrinal gauge, your theological gauge, your belief gauge. What you believe, especially about God, matters. If what you believe about God is wrong, it, it only goes downhill from there. So right doctrine 
matters. We're typically pretty good in the evangelical church at making sure that gauge is where it's supposed to be. Simultaneously, we're pretty good at your ethical gauge, right behavior. We may not always live up to it, but we tend to know that there's a right, there's a wrong. Uh, This is how you behave. This is righteous. This is unrighteous. But where we tend to neglect the most is our relational gauge. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. we We tend to look at these two over here Watch your moral gauge, watch, you know, being righteous, watch your doctrinal gauge. But, but then the individualism that we talked about last week where this sort of, it's just me and Jesus and I don't really need the church. I don't really need God's people. I don't need other people around me, loving me, challenging me. You have these, this loose connection with churches at best that can be broken, like over the smallest little offense, walls of guardedness pop up, even among those of us who are part of the church because we're, we're scared to death of getting hurt, which means our doctrinal and our moral gauges are fine, but our relational gauge is on empty. And if your relational gauge is on empty, that's actually an indicator things might not be as right with you and God even as you think they might be. So what we're going to see today is a much greater clarity between the two. We're going to learn that the most accurate gauge of our spiritual health is actually our relationships with each other. Not because what we believe is unimportant, not because of how we behave that that's unimportant, but because the acid test of it, the the most tangible result of it comes out in our relationships with each other. Peach Cazero, a former pastor, calls this emotionally healthy spirituality. And the, and the big idea is this, that the only truly way to walk in the light of the gospel is if we do it together. That's not something you can do by yourself. So then the question is, how do we do it? So what John's going to do for us in verses 5 through 10 is he's going to unpack for us four regular practices that every single one of us needs to integrate into our lives if we're actually going to walk in the light. This is where we'll see the, the verse that, that we often read at communion. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So four practices, and they are as follows. We worship the same God. We walk in the same truth. We fight the same sin, and we say the same things. All right, so let's, let's take these in order, starting with worship the same God. John says in verse 5, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, if you compare this with verse 1, he's talking about a, a message that he's already said. We announce with boldness, confidence, we, we receive it from the one we saw. Contrary to the Gnostics, Jesus was flesh and bones. He had a body. We saw him. We touched him. We embraced him. We ate with him. That which we were in the presence of, the one who was God made manifest. Nobody better to talk about God than God himself. Amen? And so he gave us the message that we now proclaim. We touched him, we saw him, we heard him. And what we're about to tell you, we got directly from him. And so that's the thrust of this message, and it's twofold, starting with this one. God is light. What John's doing here is he's employing some Greek metaphors that his cultural audience would have instantaneously recognized. Light in Greek thought was a symbol of purity. It was a symbol of something that's not defiled. It was a symbol of everything holy, including, by the way, pure and exhaustive knowledge and enlightenment that God is light. He knows all. He sees all. He is empowered over all. He is everywhere present. Every bit of that packed into three words. God is light. And then comes the corollary. In him there is no darkness at all. 
All right. So contrasted with the metaphor of light is darkness, anything that defiles the pure, the holy. Literally, the word-for-word translation is a lot more emphatic. If you were reading this in a Greek syntax, it would sound something like this. God is light and darkness in him? No, not at all. All right, it's, it's much, much more emphatic. God is pure. There's no, the, the very nature of God, darkness cannot exist in the light. And this is the basic theology that John is going to use for the rest of his letter, that people of the same faith will see God in this way. Now, this is where we start, right? It's not my relationship with you or you or you or whether or not we happen to like each other or share the same hobbies. It's the fact that we see God in the same way. That's the impenetrable unity That's the basis for it right there, the nature of God, that people of the same faith will see him in the same way. And that this particular way of seeing God affects a couple of things. Number one is our understanding of how we come into relationship with him. Matthew 5, 48 says, be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. We know later in scripture that we're incapable of doing that and that apart from God himself bringing the light that is necessary to, to cure our own darkness and our own imperfection, uh, we, we have no salvation. But the second thing we see here is our relationship with each other. Every bit of this starts with God in some way. The most basic question, I'm teaching a theology class now. We're, we, the, the, this is our third week, 4.30 this afternoon. I, I'm sorry to tell you if you haven't signed up, it is full. We can't get another body in that classroom. Um, but we'll do it again. We'll do it again at a later date. But, but we're going to start the doctrine of God today. We've spent the last two weeks looking at Scripture. What do we believe about Scripture? Who is God? Man, that's the most foundational question of theology. And here's the thing, guys. If you get that question wrong, it only goes downhill from there. Okay? That's why you, it's okay to enjoy movies like The Shack, but don't take that, okay, over Scripture. It's going to lead you to some dangerous places. Right? You just got to be careful with those kinds of things. Who is God? That's a question. It's the ultimate question. So John lays the ethical basis for everything that comes later by establishing the true nature of God for all of us and calling us to a, a common understanding. Say, this is what unites us. It's that we see God in the same way. This is, and I love you, why I am so annoying to some of you who insist on being in a relationship with a non-Christian. Because he's cute. Yeah, so's a puppy. Because he's hot. Yeah, so's hell. Like, what, what is this all about? No, you're, you're in a relationship. The basis for all of that, ask anybody who's been married longer than 15 minutes, it's hard enough with Jesus. Let alone if one of you is without him, right? And so we, that's why we, you're not even united to the most basic element of reality, which is the identity and the person of God. But here's the good news. It's the assumption that lies behind John's words. When we have difficulty, so if I'm struggling in my marriage, and this coming July 30th will be 30 years for me and Mrs. Rainey. And, and I'm telling you, it, we've had some struggles if there's conflict in the church, the starting point for reconciliation's already been provided for us. Isn't that good news? God is light. There's no darkness in him. There's no conflict in him. He doesn't contradict himself. He doesn't have schizophrenia. He doesn't have multiple personality disorder. He is pure, holy, righteous, everywhere present. And he is there where all of us go if we want to be reconciled to each other. Because once we get fully reconciled to him, 
then that all starts to come into play. That's the point here. God has been made manifest in human flesh. He's revealed himself to us. We're truly united and reconciled with God. If that's true of me, reconciliation with my brother, my sister is not just possible, it's, it's probable. But this is where we have to face an uncomfortable truth. There really is no legitimate reason for two people who worship the same Jesus to remain unreconciled to each other. None. So why does it happen? Why, why are so many of us at odds? Why, why do you let everything from politics to who's going to get that classroom to who's going to get gym space in here next week to whatever else? You, you know, churches are, man, they fight over the dumbest stuff, don't they? Why do we let that happen? Well, John answers that question next. It's because we refuse to walk in the truth that's been revealed to us. The problem is not God. The problem, usually, sometimes it is, but usually it's not that one of you is all bad and the other one is all good, right? If you've got this mindset that I'm always the righteous one and if I've got a disagreement, they're always the person that's wrong, you set yourself up as the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty dangerous place to be. You, you don't want to do that. So worship the same God, but number two, walk in the same truth. He goes on in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Again, the logic of what we just read flows from the truth of verse 5 and it pops out at us in this word fellowship that we looked at last week. Okay? Vested relationship. Remember, fellowship is not bad coffee. Fellowship doesn't take place necessarily in a fellowship hall. Fellowship is the koinonia, the vested relationships that we have in each other. And so if there is a break in fellowship, or what we might call a refusal to be in a vested relationship with another brother and sister, that's an indication that the light of God has not dispelled all of the darkness in my soul just yet. Which means that likely is not, if I've got a, uh, if there's an issue between me and another brother and another sister, there, there likely isn't the fellowship with God even that I might think there is. Which is why he says, if you say you are vested in your relationship with God and at the same time you walk about in darkness, that word literally means to, to intentionally walk around in, not to walk through, not to occasionally slip up and fall into, we're all going to get mad, we're all going to lose our temper, we're all going to say things we shouldn't, we're all going to go places and do things that we shouldn't, and, and sometimes, especially in a significant relationship in a marriage, we might do it completely tone deaf to our spouse for years before finally the Holy Spirit just thumps us across the back of the head and says, you ain't been thinking right. And this is the way, right? And we snap out of it, okay? That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about going through a period of darkness, coming out of it. He's saying if you intentionally walk around in the darkness, you are, you, you lie. The word is pseudo. And it means really the exact same thing that our English word means. It means to be a fake. You know what this just said? It says, if I got a me and Jesus, I don't really need to be a part of the regular body. I don't need to gather regularly. I don't, I don't need to be in fellowship with other Christians. It's just me and Jesus. I post sentimental posts on social media. But at the same time, I'm intentionally cordoning myself off from brothers and sisters in Christ. No matter the reason, I'm a fake. 
That's what he says. So how do we know that John is speaking of relationships here? Keep reading to verse 7 where he says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So you got two, two phrases here, one at the beginning, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the other's at the end, the blood of Jesus, what we just memorialized in communion, cleanses us from all sin. All right, again, this isn't a work salvation. I don't get to heaven by being nice to people. I get to heaven through the blood of Jesus, but sandwiched in between those two is the evidence that those two things are true about you. We have fellowship with one another. We have vested relationships with each other. We understand that, that this, isn't, this isn't just a spending account for checking like I used to take my wife and daughter out to dinner last night. This is a, this is a 401k. This is, a, this is an account we look at very differently because we understand our future's bound up with it. Right? And that, the same way, John says, that's how we are to be relationally. We have fellowship with one another. So let's review the logic again. God is light. We're called to walk in the light. We're told we can only walk in the light by the cleansing blood of Jesus. And we're told if we're walking in the light, the evidence of that vested relationship with God is our vested relationships with each other. And remember, our future is bound up. That's what it means. Like that retirement account. You can't just recklessly pull money out of that and go to the beach recklessly borrow against it because you got sloppy with your credit cards and expect that it will not adversely affect your future. Simultaneously, you cannot treat the body of Christ like a transaction. That's all there is to it. You treat it like a vested relationship. All these people are people with whom my future is bound up. But especially over the course of the last decade or so, we've seen how Christians show recklessness in how they quickly divide from each other, haven't we? Love, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, assumes the best. It assumes the best. Right? Doesn't mean you're supposed to be naive. Doesn't mean you're supposed to be somebody else's doormat. But you, you got to do it. I'm just going to be honest. I'm going to share my heart with you. Number one, because I love you and I owe you that. And number two, because from this point, moving through the rest of this year, it's only going to get worse, so we might as well just deal with this right now. Something broke in me when I watched the way brothers and sisters reacted to each other during the last election cycle. Listen, you can believe, let, let's get something established right now, okay? And this, this will probably alienate most of you, okay? Ted Gummit, people. If things keep shaping up the way it appears to all of us that it's going to shape up, listen, you vote, we don't judge people by how they vote around here. We don't judge, I'm not telling you vote this way, don't vote that way. I no, you vote however you want to vote. I understand the issues are complex. I get that sometimes the choices are excruciating, but here's what I don't get. I don't get brothers and sisters in Christ thinking that something is completely righteous and something else is completely wicked. Listen, if it goes the way it looks like it's going to go, then no matter who gets sworn in in January 25th, on January of 2025, this country will be led by a wicked man. And if you don't believe that, then you're using a standard other than the immovable word of God to define righteousness. That's just the truth. 
That's just the truth. Doesn't mean you can't believe one's better than the other, or I got to do this one because that one's going to be far worse. Look, I, I get all that, all right? Now, a vote is a single binary choice you make in a voting booth. And there's a, there's a limit, believe it or not, to what you can actually do with it. I'm just saying, why would you let such unrighteousness divide you off from the God who is light, who promises to unite you under the blood of Jesus? Why, why would you do that? All right? And none of this is about what you believe politically, but I'll tell you what it is about. It's about attitudes and dispositions in our culture that have come into and co-opted the church, kind of like Gnosticism did in the first century, and has made us exhibit attitudes toward each other that are indistinguishable from the world. And so this, this is what's happening. We walk in the same truth. This was, a, this was the passage that came to my mind four years ago. Because the Holy Spirit is speaking here through John and saying, the evidence of our fellowship with God is not who we vote for. It's our fellowship with each other. Which means, if you walk alone, you choose to walk in darkness. Period. Full stop. You walk alone, you walk in darkness. You walk willingly divided from another believer. You walk in darkness. And again, the hope here is that God is light and that through the blood of Jesus, we can walk in that same light. I swear, man, somebody is going to come up to me in between service. I'm going to get an email. Next week. Well, you just don't understand. Those are, and I'm going to get it from both sides because they're, they're both. I mean, we got everybody here. You're a diverse group. And some of y'all are, some of you love your candidate more than you love your brother and sister in Christ. And you need to repent of that. Whoever it is. I'm not going to church. I'm not going to have fellowship with them. God is light, and in him there is no darkness. Be a little bit honest about what's going on in our body politic, that there is much darkness. Choose the light. Choose to walk with each other. Choose to be united with each other. God is light through the blood of Jesus. You can walk in that same light, but you have to worship the same God. You have to walk in the same truth, and, and you do that, thirdly, by fighting the same nature. And guys, this is key, right? This is, this is really, I mean, if I've made you upset the last five minutes, man, the next five, you're going to go apoplectic. So just, just a little warning here. Uh, yeah, well, and I'm saying that because this, this one right here messed with me, okay? This one was like, you, I'm, you have no idea how many times if you're honest when you're preparing a sermon, the Holy Spirit is literally standing behind you going, right, are you hearing this? What's the matter with you, boy? Here it is. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, here's the temptation. It's to do what I did first time I read this in preparation for this very moment. It's just to breeze through this one. Oh, yeah, I get that. We're all sinners. Yeah. No, that's not what John is saying, or at least that's not all of what he's saying. I get that we're all sinners. Or even to be kind of like, oh, well, of course we're all sinners. Who would say such a thing? But remember the context. Verse 8 isn't occurring in a vacuum. It comes after this line of reasoning that my fellowship with God and with each other are interconnected in an inseparable way. So the logic goes like this. If you walk in darkness and you say otherwise, you deceive yourself. I don't know that there's a person in front of me right now who would deny that they're a sinner. Of course, I'm not perfect. Of course, that's, that's but that's not what's what's in view here here's what nearly all of us do including your pastor from time to time never deny it 
But boy, we like to minimize. We like to rationalize. We like to equivocate. And we do this most often when it comes to our one another relationships. And if we're just honest with our own heart, it's because we want grace for ourselves and justice for everybody else. Somebody tell me I'm lying. I wish I was. I wish I was. But that's, that's who we are. How, do, how does that happen? How does that happen? He's, he's, he's saying that his point is walking in the light and continuing to commit the vested relationships with each other means being constantly aware of the sin nature. So let's say there's a disagreement because that's what he's talking about. If in my relationships with others, I say I have no sin. Let, let's say there's hurt, right? Mrs. Rainey's not feeling too well this morning. She, she'll be fine, but just pray for her. And, um, and so she's not here this morning. So y'all don't tell her what I'm about to say, right? But if we ever get in an argument, she's obviously the one that's wrong. Isn't that the tendency, right? If there's something between you and somebody else, well, who... who Who's the offended? Well, they are, of course. It's their fault. Now, there are sins, and don't, don't hear what I'm not saying, that can cross a line and are inexcusable, no matter the cause, no matter how they were triggered to do it or whatever, right? It's one of the reasons we drop the hammer on abuse of every sort and kind here the way we do. But can we just be honest and say that about 99% of even the legitimate bona fide hurt in a church is not abuse, it's not some kind of toxicity. It's, it's, it's two people got sideways with each other. And one of them just, one or both of them just decided it's just not going to heal. But there's no clear perpetrator. And there's no clear victim. It's just a, they, they just got sideways with each other. And they let it get overheated. And then they let that get out of hand. And then it never gets healed. Because one or both parties plays the victim. I'm talking to somebody in here this morning. I don't know who it is. Maybe more than one or two of you. Play the victim. If you're always the victim, if you never recognize your own wrong, or if we're just going to use Jesus' example, and let's do that. Why don't we? Wouldn't Jesus be the place you'd want to go for that? If we don't. If we don't use Jesus' example in Matthew 7, if I don't consider the plank in my own eye before pointing out the specks in the eyes of the other person, then I am, according to John, walking in deception, walking in darkness. Again, Schizero calls this a lack of emotionally healthy spirituality. My hope is that through small groups or some form or fashion, we're going to get an emphasis on this a little bit later in the year. But basically, it looks like this. You take offense way too easily. Your skin is way too thin. Lots of insecurity underneath the surface. You get judgy, but then when somebody pushes that back in your face, you're like, oh, how grievous. Right? It comes out sometimes even as caustic towards somebody as a result. John says, if there's no admission in, in the division that you carry the same sin nature as your neighbor, you are deceiving yourself. And the truth, and he's talking about the truth of the gospel here, is not in us. Now, does he mean you are not saved? Probably sometimes, yeah. 
But more often than not, he's not questioning your salvation. He just means the full truth of the gospel hasn't really taken hold of you yet. That's certainly true if you're the kind of person that perpetually plays the role of righteous victim. And so the answer to this, John says, is admit. Humbly, man, that is so antithetical to our culture right now, isn't it? You can't do that. You can't admit that you're wrong. You've got to equivocate. You've got to turn that back around. You've got to play whataboutism. You've got to blame the other side. You've got to, yeah, yeah. why? Why? Because we're scared to death that our opponents, our enemies are going to take advantage of us if we show weakness, which means we ain't read nearly enough of King David's writings. Who before his end, what is, what is the, the greatest psalm, the one that everybody's got memorized since childhood? Lord is my shepherd. I like nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures, leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you or with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. And then comes the big one. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I, I'm just going to bow before you. I'm not going to try to be strong in front of my enemies. I'm going to be weak and vulnerable before the God who has promised to validate me, we humble ourselves in the conflict and we come to each other as fellow sinners and we commit to shift our focus from fighting each other to fighting our sin natures together. Almost inevitably when I sit down with a married couple and they're having trouble of any kind, I'll say something like this, that the problem is not that you're fighting. The problem is that you're fighting face to face and we've got to get you positionally shifted so that you're fighting shoulder to shoulder. All right, because there's always going to be a fight in this world until we see Jesus. But are we going to do this together or are we going to turn on each other? Man, that takes an awful lot of humility, even in your marriage. So it makes sense to me why it would be so easy in a church relationship, in a context of religious freedom where there's no penalty for just blowing that off to, to just say, yep, I, don't, I don't want that. But it takes a lot of humility to worship the same God, to walk in the same truth, to fight the same nature. But it also takes something else. All of this means we say the same things. More specifically, we say the same things that God does. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Don't minimize, don't rationalize, don't equivocate. Confess. What does that mean? Well, just the etymology of the word will shed some light on it for us. Homo logeo, same word. So confess means I say the same thing as God says. That's what it means. So when I do something stupid, and it is objectively stupid, because God would say it's stupid, I go, God, that was stupid. That's confession. That's confession. Just come out with it, say what he says about it. Okay, my identity in Jesus Christ is also a part of that. I don't, I'm not trapped in my sin. I don't have to be a slave like we sang about today. We're no longer slaves to sin, to fear, because God says that about us. We say the same thing about our identity that God says about us. And this is a huge problem because, again, we live in a culture that says don't ever, ever, ever do that. Your opponents are going to take advantage of that. They're going to keep piling on. But actually, the more dangerous thing to do is to double down and get stubborn because 
If we, say, if we do that, that's saying we, we are the victim or we have not sinned. or whatever. And there are two things true about us at that moment. Number one, God's word is not in us. Because if I'm not saying the same thing as God, I'm saying the opposite of what he's saying. There's no middle ground here. And secondly, I make him a liar, which is interesting to me. This is the third time we see this concept or term used in ten verses. Lie, liar, deception. Verse 6, if we walk in the darkness while claiming fellowship with God, we're liars. Verse 8, if we minimize our fault and sin in relationship with others, we lie to ourselves. And then here, if I say I have not sinned, I'm acting as though between me and God, God's the one not telling the truth. Man, I think that's far more dangerous than simply confessing in humility and, and taking the potential risk that somebody might take advantage of that on the basis of faith that God himself never will. He won't. And so you have two choices according to John here. You can continue to lie to yourself and to everyone else. You can keep up appearances. You can make yourself out to always be the hero, always be the victim, always the righteous one, always the innocent one, or you can confess your sin. Believe that Jesus is Oh, and this is where it gets good. He is faithful. That means what he says he will do, he will do. He has never broken a promise. And he is just. He doesn't just mean well. He has the authority and the power to execute on his promises. So you know that they're eventually going to come true. He is faithful and just to do what? To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and the acid test we're told in verse 7 of forgiven cleansed people is this we have fellowship with one another those vested relationships they continue they deepen they they make us better so why doesn't that happen why doesn't that happen why is it that that some of the most caustic conflict in the west happens in a church Y'all know, you, you know the difference, by the way, between a church fight and a bar fight? Bar fight's over 15 minutes. Church fight takes 15 years. Look, I, I mean, I know I'm a dude, but good grief, man. Some days I would prefer a bar fight. I know it's violent. I know there's broken beer bottles all over the counter, and there's blood on the floor, and more than a few teeth are missing after it's over. But you know what those guys are doing? Oh, man, I'm so sorry. I love you so much. We hold grudges. Nobody's ever thrown a sucker punch in this room. Nobody. I've been in churches around the Mid-Atlantic area. Man, there's not been the first sucker punch thrown, but it's cold as ice in that place because of the grudges. Why does that happen? Why do we let the enemy get that kind of foothold? Why do the smallest things set us off from one another? Well, John just told us the reason. It's because we deny, we minimize, we equivocate on the extent to which our own sin nature has corrupted our lives and its effect on our relationships. I'm, that's, that's something I had to do with our staff. I came back from sabbatical, and it was one of the areas where I said, hey, you know, I've been handling some things wrong. I've been looking at some things wrong. And, and I, I came to recognize, especially while I was in Puerto Rico, that, that that's affected some of you in a negative way, and it shouldn't have. And I know I'm your boss, but I'm Man, I'm incredibly sorry for that. And, and let's talk about what we can do. That, guys, that's, that's the necessity. You've got to own whatever's yours and then figure out how to make it right and move forward under this rubric of, of the blood of Jesus. You're cleansed. You, you have the power. You have the capacity to do it. But I'm becoming more convinced every day 
that emotional toxicity may be the biggest problem that we have in the modern church and that none of us will ever grow spiritually beyond our own emotional health limitations because we've been looking at the wrong gauges. Doctrine's good. Doctrine's good. Behavior's good. Don't sleep around. Don't cheat. Pay my taxes. Take care of everything. I give generously. I, you know, I'm, I'm well respected in the community. Everything looks good. But way over here on the relational side, you're running on fumes. And you wonder why nothing's getting fixed. You're out of gas. That's why. And God willing, in the next few weeks here and in your groups, maybe we'll learn a better way. Because good news is it's available to us. That way is available to us. You know, the comedian Woody Allen, I don't know how many of you remember him, a comedian of, of really a couple of generations ago. He was a self-proclaimed atheist. But he was a rather open-minded one. And Billy Graham actually asked him once, what would you want God to say to you if you were to meet him? And the atheist Woody Allen didn't bat an eye. He said, I would want to hear just three words. You are forgiven. That, that's, that's, what I, that's pretty deep for a guy who doesn't even believe God exists. Here's the most wonderful news of 1 John, and we'll continue to see this over and over and over again. You can be. And if you are, it will affect the vestedness of your relationships with each other. It will make all the difference in the world. And in a world that we, yeah, nobody knows what's going to happen. And I'm not even talking about our own country right now. I'm just saying the world in general is just in a mess right now. If it all comes apart, the promise of 1 John is that there can be a new community right here that becomes the hope of the world. Listen, I loved President Reagan, but when he identified America as a city set on a hill, he was wrong. Jesus wasn't talking about a country. He was talking about the people in front of me. He was talking about the church. Let's build that community together. Lord Jesus, thank you for the promises of your word. Thank you for the clarity of your expectation. Thank you for the hope that is given us in the blood of Christ. And I pray in this moment of response that your people would just follow the lead of the Holy Spirit, whatever that looks like, Lord. If they're here and they have never confessed you as Lord, I pray that today is the day. One of our elders or deacons is able to just take them and guide them to the foot of the cross and, and help them to turn from their sins and put their faith and trust in you for the very first time. Lord, if there's someone here, whatever kind of problems are going on in their life or recognition of ways and different tacks that they need to take, different approaches in their life for reconciliation here that will affect the level of reconciliation between them and yourself, Lord, I pray they would cling to the promises and come, Lord, not in fear, but in the hope that your promises are true. God, draw them in today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. 
So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.